I'm Karen Lewis, and thank you for listening to Recovery Bites. This podcast is about life in recovery from an eating disorder. The good and the not so good. The successes and the challenges. Episodes will include stories from fully recovered professionals about the sometimes sad, sometimes painful, but always beautiful accounts from their recovery. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone. We decided because we're nearing the end of the first season of this podcast, and I can't believe I'm saying that, that we are going to take out an oldie but goodie. It was really hard to choose because, as you can imagine, all of the guests have been phenomenal. We decided we're going to bring Maria Hornbacher's episode back. It got a little buried at the beginning, so we wanted to make sure everyone heard it. Okay, I hope you enjoy. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. I am incredibly, incredibly honored to introduce you to our guest today. We have author, journalist, excuse me, let me try that again, journalist, Professor Maria Hornbacher. Maria, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. I'm so happy to have you on the show for so many reasons, which we are absolutely going to get into. So... For those of you who may or may not know, depending on your age, Mari and I are about the same age, so I was around when the book came out. Maria wrote the book, Wasted. Is it Memoirs of Anorexia and Bulimia? I just turned my head from the microphone, everyone. I apologize. Yes. It's a memoir. It's a memoir. A memoir. I apologize. We're starting off strong, aren't we, everybody? (laughs) So, unbelievable book. You and I are going to get into the book. We're going to talk about some of the controversy about it, some of the gems from it, and then where you've been since then. So again, Maria, welcome to the show. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about who you are and what you're currently doing? I can indeed. Thanks, first of all, for having me, Karen. It's uh, it's a joy to be here. It's so interesting. 22 years ago, when that book came out, the idea of podcasts would have been like, what are you talking about? We didn't have, you know, the Google at that point. And so, <laughs> and so it's great that we, ha- we have this forum now um, that we can really, you know, get down and, uh, and dirty with these topics, because these were things that were so hushed when I started writing about this stuff. It's great that we can actually have a conversation about it now without the FCC getting on my... Uh, my butt about swearing because I'm gonna oh no we swear we swear her it's good it's speak the way where your heart is um what I do now uh I'm a professor I mean my primary identity now it's like I think about you wrote a book about eating disorders Maria and I always kind of have to remind myself of that because I don't ever think about it like a lot of writers my first book was a practice run and uh you know I don't I can I can give you a list of writers who would say oh god that first book I the fact is, though, most writers are actually best known by their first book. Um, and so most of us are like, God, could they just take that off my list? That's not totally true here, but certainly my first book, the one I'm best known for, is the one that's least uh, least representative of the work I've done in 30 years. You know, so I'm a, I'm a professor of journalism and nonfiction and fiction and poetry. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a person in the world. I travel a lot. I teach like a maniac. I love it. Uh, I'm deeply close to my friends and family, and that's kind of my life these days. I love it. It's beautiful. I think we're just going to jump right in. So just so listeners know, Mari and I talked about this before we started recording, and this book, and, and I know you said you're not known just for the book, but for me, it was a powerful book. You and I have talked about some of the controversy that has come from it because there's numbers, there's weights, there's ways of, you know, engaging in behaviors. I think, unfortunately, first of all, there's a few things. I think it's important that listeners know that you originally started this as an academic book. You are a teacher at heart. 
So what happened that you wanted to write this academic book on eating disorders and it turned into this memoir, which by the way, was very, very popular and controversy sometimes is popular. I'm sorry to say that. No, it's, it's absolutely uh, a good point. You know, I think the thing to look at first here is that the book, I wrote the book when I was 21. Uh, it came out when I was 23. So I don't know what you were doing when you were 21, but I kind of uh, was crawling around my life trying to find out how do you change a tire? How do you buy health insurance? Where's the bank? <laughs> you know? But I was also an academic and I was teaching at that point. I was a student teacher at that point. <clears throat> so my original idea, as you say, was specifically though, to write a feminist critique of American pop culture that was giving rise at that time to eating disorders in a way that was beginning to be noticed in academic circles. So, you know, brainy, brainiac nerd person here was like, I'm gonna write a little feminist critique of eating disorders. I happen to know something about them myself. That side fact, which to me was really tangential, the fact that I knew them experientially, I don't know who picked up on that, but somebody in, uh, in, in, the, in the upper echelons of publishing heard, oh wait, she has a personal story here. Uh, this was before what we now call the memoir boom. When we look back on uh, literary history, we talk about the memoir boom of the mid, early to mid nineties. <clears throat> Wasted was very much a part of that memoir boom. They were starting to, okay, you can look at the negative side of this first, which is really capitalize on women's stories. And later I began to call this the, the phenomenon of the train wreck girl. So we've got Girl Interrupted, we've got Prozac Nation, we've got the Liars Club. So there's all these women, specifically white educated women. So it wasn't at all representative, not even kind of representative. So these were very, very white, very educated, somewhat snarky girls who were self-destructing. That narrative got real popular real fast because there are a lot of them and it's fun to watch a train wreck. So that's the, that's the sort of, you know, that's a little bit bitter looking at that. The flip side of that is that prior to then, women's stories, memoir itself was seen as really kind of lowbrow, pulp fiction-y sort of like chiclet was, be was being talked about a lot at the time too. So basically what was happening was women authors were taking up a lot of shelf space in a way they hadn't previously. And the very, very heavily white male critical establishment was looking at us like, oh, please, you know, don't even talk to us about like your little domestic drama of eating disorder. What does that even mean? Right? Now we're now, you know, 25 years later, it's a different world. You know, there are a lot of women writers. There are a lot of women writers of color. There are writers of color of all gender identifications. Things have shifted, not entirely, not enough. But at that time, there was the beginnings of a tide of personal narrative making the claim that our stories individually mattered. So let's say that that's what was valuable from that time. How it became a personal narrative? Well, it was a combination of people wanted personal narratives and publishing companies wanted to capitalize on personal narrative. So that's how. You know, you and I spoke on the phone a few weeks ago. And one of the things we talked about, and I used my own example, if somebody, if they, if their mind is set or their mind is searching for something, they are going to pull out whatever they want from literature, from movies, from talks. And the example that I gave you was 30 years ago when I was at an all-girls college and Gene Kilborn, who is phenomenal, came to give the talk and it was called Killing Us Softly. It was the most powerful documentary about how women are made of just objects in the field. They will do anything for advertisement. It was really talking about how women are objectified in the field of advertisement. And there was one advertisement that everybody in the crowd went, oh, and I went, oh. And it was for a pair of high-end shoes. I don't know who, what the brand is. And there was destruction all around. There was a trash can. There was a woman's legs that had been cut off stuffed in the trash cans, blood coming down her legs. And then she was wearing a pair of high heel pumps. And everybody was horrified at how they had mutilated this woman. And all I could think of was, God, she's got great legs. I want those legs. 
Those legs are the legs I've always wanted. I don't think I heard anything else. So that's one of the things that you and I talked about in your book. Like I read your book today and I'm, all I'm looking at is the beauty of your language and the story of your emotional suffering. It depends where somebody is at, what they choose to pull out of something. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, what that, that, that story you tell about the experience of listening to Jean Kilborn, feminist icon, talking about the mutilation of women, and you're looking at like these great legs, that speaks to, of course, as you're saying, where you were, where your subjectivity was at that time. It doesn't actually speak to Jean Kilborn. Like, should Jean Kilborn not have used that image because it's what, triggering? Well, perhaps the advertising company should have been less triggering. But the fact of the matter is when we, this is a problem always when we talk about nonfiction of any kind, we deal with this a lot in academia right now with the question of trigger warnings. Like, do I represent every single piece I teach that's potentially disruptive to a reader as triggering? Or do I let students decide for themselves? I mean, my, my default is to trust the reader. That has gotten me in some serious shit over time. My decision to trust the reader before I wrote Wasted led to an incredible backlash on that book because the response in the immediate aftermath of its publication was from women our age, right? So women our age were saying, oh my God, you told my story. Somebody finally opened their mouths and talked about this out loud, put it on a page, said, it is this gross. It is this disgusting. It is this destructive. It is this misogynistic. It is this damaging. This is what happens when you have an eating disorder. The idea that that would have been in any way remotely attractive to a reader, let alone give them good ideas, was like, it was so far from our understanding, my understanding, my agents understanding, my editors, like it did not cross our minds that the incredibly raw graphic nature of Wasted would be anything other than off-putting. Like we really didn't know very much at that time. I mean, you know, it came out in 98, right? So think about the eating disorders research at that time. We didn't know a whole lot about what was problematic in eating disorders treatment. Like we didn't know why, like when I was first treated for eating disorders, I was locked in and tube fed. Okay, that didn't work that well. But then again, neither did what were they going to cover all the signs once I walked outside the hospital? Were they going to cut the tags out of all my pants? Were they going to tell me, don't read anything? Don't look at other people. Don't look at the other patients here. That'll be triggering. I mean, we'll put you in a little bubble chamber, you know, where you just are by yourself with your thoughts and get to have as many neuroses unimpeded as you wish. So, I mean, there are, there are a lot of policies on this now that are problematic. And so when Wasted came out, really, we didn't have the language for what's triggering. Like there wasn't, you know, there wasn't that constant sort of, oh, this triggers me, that triggers me, this triggers me, the other thing triggers me. When I hear that, and I hear it a lot, both in the classroom and out in the world, but I don't hear it from people my age. I hear it from people who've been acculturated to the idea that they need to have the, pad, the world padded for them. I didn't grow up that way. You know, I managed somehow to get an eating disorder without wasted having been in the public, you know, canon at that time. Somehow I picked that shit right up. So did the saints in 14th century France. You know, eating disorders are not original to the 90s. We didn't make this shit up. And talking about it then, okay, so then you become, there, there's this problem. There's lots of good articles on this subject. By talking about them, do you glamorize them? Well, or... By talking about them, do you catch those few people who are ready to analyze them intelligently and help them find a way out? Or do we just keep the lid on it and say, don't talk about it? And, and to me, that's a little bit like, you know, the abstinence only sex education. If you don't talk about sex, kids will never find out how it happens. Like, and the world, of course, continues to be populated over and over and over because people figure out how to have sex with or without sex ed. Wow. So, I mean, that's to me like a little bit of a, you know, the culture wars right now are really about, do we use the language that specifies what's happening to us and what we're choosing? Or do we pretend that nobody will be okay? We're all so fragile that you can't speak real language to us or will what, dissolve? So that's really, you know, it's a very, very complicated and kind of a kind of a fraught issue to this day, to this day, not just with Wasted. Wasted was kind of the front end of that silly, you know, destruction of free speech, but you know, whatever else, it's still a problem. 
I often used to say to clients, so I, I had been a clinical director for many years at residential programs and we do, we go through everything. They can't bring anything into the facility. Well, by the way, I'm saying this and I know clients have. Right now, some of the clients are like, oh, if you only knew what you didn't see in the search. But we do. We shield them from magazines. We dub the, dub, is that the right word? We, we silence the commercials. We don't let certain books in. We don't, and the clients say to us, that is not the real world. And I say, you're right. I 100% agree. But when you're at this level of illness, that you need to be in 24-hour care, it is my job to try to limit that you're right. And what it does is it makes you an educated consumer. That's the difference. You're Maria, you're not triggering people. People have to be educated consumers. People have to understand where they're at. They, this, this is the choice. By the way, I'm not, I'm not saying, I'm not, I, I, I don't know what I'm saying. It's, it's a very powerful, powerful discussion. There was somebody who, who, I, who I read about, was it, uh, how do you say her name? Abra Fortune. Chernick. Did I say that correctly? Yeah. 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 She wrote an article and said, I learned about womanhood from fashion magazines, Madison Avenue and Hollywood. There's triggers all over the place. What are we going to do? Right. And I fully agree with you that like when you are in a state where you need to be in clinical care on that level, providing a certain amount of a safety net is totally reasonable. What I struggle with is I'm in, for example, in front of a classroom. Students are voluntarily there. They're paying money to get an education. Am I supposed to couch the education in constant warnings that it might be painful to educate oneself? The world is, in fact, a mess. And it isn't actually my job, either as an educator or as a writer, to pull punches. You know, and so, like, who, who is in charge? I mean, that becomes the kind of, like, where does the buck stop? in terms of personal responsibility. Like when I say, like at the very beginning of Wasted in the introduction, I say, I'm like, look, nobody took my plate away. You know, that is the most important line in that whole book. When you look at the factors, yeah, was my family a mess? Yes, still is. My family's also amazing. They're still not starving me. To this day, it's not their fault I got an eating disorder. You know, what, there is no simplistic, we all know about complex PTSD at this point. One book, one family event, even one family dynamic, like one relationship, none of that in and of itself is enough to causally create an eating disorder, not without social forces. Well, I also want to point out something that was just coming to my mind is with social media nowadays, you can Google anything, anything. When I had anorexia 30 years ago, they didn't, they didn't have treatment centers. Or if they did have residential treatment centers, I say this every time, I didn't know where they were. I had no access to them. Unfortunately, clients pick up behaviors from other clients in treatment. That's where I learned it, is in the hospital. You know, I didn't have a, a manual, as people are often calling wasted. You know, it's a how-to manual. I'm like, right. Yeah, you didn't make it up. You're right. You didn't create it. I for sure picked that up uh, in in inpatient. You know, I for sure picked that up in the wards. And so, like, you know, the idea that that eating disorder people, people who deal with eating disorder stuff, are are unable to come up with that on their own. We've been doing it a long time, you know. And so, having a book, you know, is the book in in, in itself problematic for some readers for sure. For some clinicians who've never encountered that before, maybe not. Maybe those clinicians learn something. You know, I hear from families all the time who say, you know, it really helped me understand it. I wouldn't let my daughter anywhere near it. I'm like, by all means, don't. She's 11. You know, I mean, it's like also like, where does parenting step in here and go, to what extent are you like, are you, are you putting the porn block on your son's phone? Because if you're going to limit your daughter's reading, you're going to want to look around at what's going on the rest of the world. You know, I mean, like, how do we, again, it becomes a matter of personal responsibility. I'm also not advocating that people with active eating disorders read that book any more than I advocate someone in the first year of sobriety, go hang out in a bar and drink a Coke. 
you know, I mean, it's sit in a barbershop long enough, you'll get a haircut, right? You know, there is that matter of like, we have to take care of ourselves. And that seems to be where the crux of the problem is. We're not learning how to do that. And so suddenly it's everybody else's fault. We're having a hard time. And I don't buy that. I, ju I just don't. Yeah. Has there been feedback though? Because when I reread it a few weeks ago, because it had been a while since I had read it, my heart was aching throughout that entire book because of the personal experiences that you talked about that you went through, not because of the behaviors that you talked about. Like I connected with the writing. I connected with the experiences that I remembered as a teenager, as a child, as a young adult. So there are some really powerful messages of insight for people to understand that eating disorders are not just about food. It's not just about a thin body. I am hoping that people have also praised you for this book because there is a lot of really important information. Oh, sure. I mean, for the first 10 years it was out, there wasn't really controversy. That controversy came about on re-examining that book once the controversy around triggers came up. Suddenly, in about 2005, 2006, there was a huge backlash. You know, we're close to 10 years in on that publication. Suddenly, there's a huge boom in, and I would argue that it's an, a deeply anti-feminist, anti-woman, essentialist point of view, that suddenly, like, we have to protect these young, fragile girls from their own minds. And so, all books, it wasn't just wasted by any stretch, any book that talks about any sort of self-destructive impulse or activity. Get that out of there. Put it in the book burning box. You know, I mean, it just became really reactionary that there were, it was like somebody saw that women and young people in general were really becoming very, very self-destructive. And they saw that as like triggered by one, two or three forces. Nobody was looking at the fact that internet was, was now universal. I mean, internet, social media, this sort of virtual existence so yes, people certainly for 10 years or so were like, thank you for writing that book. That was really important. It helped me understand eating disorders, my own, my friends, my wives, my daughters, whatever, my clients. So for 10 years, it was fine. And then suddenly, boom, there was this big wave of, in fact, books that went right after me for having caused people's eating disorders. I was like, wow, that is a lot of power to give one five foot tall woman who's never met you in her life, you know? And so I'm like, I'm not sure I buy that. You know, I mean, words are powerful. Narrative is powerful. That's what we look at in narrative medicine and medical humanities, which is something I teach. You know, we look at the power of story to heal. We also need to look at the power of story to be used against each other and against ourselves. And so that I think is it. I don't mean to at all diminish the fact that that book and others like it can be used against oneself. You can also use a box cutter for a lot of things that aren't actually boxes. You know, I mean, that's just the thing is like, to what extent do we misuse the properties in the world around us against ourselves? And then the problem is, how are we treating ourselves? Let me ask you a question. As somebody who has struggled with an eating disorder, with bipolar disorder, with substance abuse, how did you navigate through this all of a sudden, massive shift. 10 years after the book came out, all of a sudden there's this huge backlash because that's another thing. The reason for this podcast, welcome to life, right? Life is complicated. Life is very challenging. Life throws us curveballs. And how do you navigate through it? I think that, that is the part about this that I think is so valuable because when when you and I were young and early in recovery, right, uh, there wasn't anybody to say, oh God, you know, 20 years from now, you'll be looking at this and like, well, that was silly. Not in, a, in an invalidating way, but like the recognition that life does continue in recovery and post-recoveredness, you know, life gets really interesting, really engaging, really vibrant and really difficult, really difficult. When I look back at the years that I spent with eating disorders, it is no wonder to me that I wanted to live in the hospital full-time because in the hospital, I was never broke. 
I was never trying to buy groceries. I was never having to arrange for car insurance. Like none of that mattered. I didn't have to worry about my job or COVID or any other damn thing because I was so busy trying to get out of eating a pat of butter. Like, and so I don't mean to be like, that is invalid. It is really a skill that I needed at that time to avoid the magnitude of what was going on in my world, right? You know, it was very, very useful for me at that time to narrow my experience down to the numerics, right? Now in real life, so when, when that backlash came along and uh, by then, you know, social media and uh, the internet were pretty much universal by the time that backlash came along, that was that 10 year period. I was blindsided. I was like, you're joking, right? You know, really? I'm, I'm suddenly now, you know, the book's been out for 10 years and now we know why eating disorders are happening. It's because of a book that's been out for 10 years. So that seemed very odd to me. What I did, and I've done it since, uh, is become very, very, again, as you say, a very educated consumer of social media. You know, I mean, like, I don't, I don't play much in that sandbox because it's catty. It's catty and it's empty to me. Um, I read a lot. I watch a lot of films, I watch a lot of documentaries, I, uh, I read the news, you know, I do things like that. But it is my job, it is my academic field to be aware of how information is used for and against the people in the world. You know, it is my job to analyze that. I, re I really learned very quickly that social media felt so invasive to me that I didn't really wanna be on it. And so I am to some extent, but not much. Um, and so that's where that conversation uh, which got sillier and sillier and hashtagier and hashtagier and memeier and memeier and emptier and emptier. That just wasn't, it wasn't and isn't for me. And so how did I manage it? I stepped out, you know? I mean, I've given lectures since then where I say to students, I'm like, you know, you don't have to check Facebook, Instagram and 8,000 other things every damn day. And they look at me blinkingly like, of course you do. And I'm like, no, you don't actually. No one cares. No one cares if you've got the latest meme. No one cares. Why do you care? Like, and so like me disappearing from Facebook, nothing bad has happened. Like I have more time to read. I have more time to like hang with friends, write new books, you know, things like that. And, and it's just like, it's, it's just a matter of how do we take care of ourselves in a world that is increasingly full of garbage? I'll pick your way around the garbage and get to the good stuff. You know, I guess that's, that's how I handled it. Do you also think writing is something that has is an ongoing therapeutic part of your life. Like, I, I'm curious if as a writer, especially with the topics that you've written about, they're very personal, does that keep you grounded? Is that a tool that you use? No. No, no, I'm surprised to hear you say that. No, I know, because the assumption that when, when one writes nonfiction, when one writes personal narrative of any kind, when, when one writes in the first person, the I, right? That first person narrator, the assumption is that I is catharting. But in fact, that I on the page is a construction. Right now, this is cathartic. This is me live. This is me real and raw, right? On the page, that thing's gone through literally thousands of revisions. You know, so when people like talk to me and they're like, oh, I feel like I know you so well. And I'm going, I don't think so though. I don't, we've never met. And the I with which this reader is familiar is one who is, you know, curated and has chosen its words carefully and been edited and been reprinted in dozens of languages millions of times. You know, that is not a real self. And so like my private, like the garbage I write in my notebooks, that's therapeutic, but I literally throw them out as soon as I'm done with the notebook. They go in the trash. Really? Yeah, the, the articles, the essays, the poetry, the short stories, the novels, the fiction, the nonfiction that I write, not therapeutic, that's craft. You know, I mean, could I live without it? Probably not, but I can't live without air either. And I don't think of it as therapeutic. I think of it as a fundamental need, <laughs> you know? And so like, it's not therapeutic to me to write about my experiences. Actually, it's pretty, pretty awful. You know, what's hard, you know, what's therapeutic is going to therapy. You know, and in therapy, my therapist is like, are we, gonna, are we gonna use our words today? Or are we gonna like argue about the books you read this week? Like her ability to get me to talk about real stuff, she's been working at it a long time and it's still tough. You know, therapeutic stuff is not, is not my strong suit. Writing is my strong suit. It is really fascinating. It just goes to show we all make assumptions of somebody else's life. 
we all make assumptions that, oh, you just sat down one day and just started writing and da 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 da, da and this beautiful book comes out. You're right. It was edited. It was manicured. It was scratched out. Addition, like, I didn't even think about that. Right. Of course it is. I mean, for every book that I've written, there's probably seven or eight books worth of trash pages. I mean, you know, I know that to be true of like one of my books. I went through 3000 draft pages, threw the whole thing out, started over and wrote it start to finish. But that was seven years after starting it. I mean, books are not like when people say to me and they, I get this a lot, people are like, you know, I'm going to sit down and write a book one of these days. I always laugh and I'm like, you know, well, after I finish writing my books, I'm going to be a surgeon real quick. Like when I've got time. No, fuck you. Excuse me. But like, you know, dude, I've worked at this craft a long time. Trust me. It didn't just pop out that way. You know, we're not Athena, you know, popping out of Zeus's head fully formed. That's not what books are. That's not art. You should be a comedian because you're really, really what's funny about that I mean like thank god you know you know my girlfriends my girlfriends also guy friends who um you know people of all people who've dealt with serious mental health stuff that cracks you over you would say that like aren't all your clients really funny because how else do you get through this my god you know like that's what we always talk about is like how else are you gonna get through this stuff there's no surviving it if you can't laugh I just, and you know what you're right I just love you're like yeah and after that I'm just gonna become a surgeon because it's and you know what? There is stuff that you have to laugh at. There's also really hard stuff though. Like how do you, what are your thoughts? I'm wondering if someone is sitting here right now listening to it, listening to this podcast and they have struggled with or currently one of the above, eating disorder, bipolar disorder, substance abuse. How do you, how, I bet they're sitting there saying, they're probably saying, well, Maria can do it. I can't. Right? That's right. Easy for her to say. Yeah. Right. What are your thoughts about that? And I'm only saying that from my own experience, because when I used to see people that were recovered, I'd be like, well, first of all, I don't even think I knew people were recovered then. But I used to be like, well, they can live a normal life. I can't. Normalcy looks good on them. I don't know what normalcy looks good on everybody but oneself, right? Because when it's ourselves, we realize normalcy is super funny and it wakes up with like sheet in its face. You know, I mean, normalcy is not elegant ever, ever. You know what I mean? And so, like, I think that's the thing is if people had said to me, I don't know, 25, 30 years ago, you know, one day you're going to be way too busy to, to be involved in your pant size. Like, it's just not because that's unimportant, but because other things become more important to you. And that's a choice process. You know, that's like, I think there's both an element of like, how did we do this? How did we recover? Like on a technical level? Well, to me, unfortunately, that is more simple than I was ever led to believe or allowed to believe because it's not, it doesn't profit anyone when I'm recovered. You know, I mean, no one's making any money off me being recovered, right? So um, the fact is recovery as a process and a post-recovered post process isn't even, it isn't a straight line. I mean, it goes in spirals in much more like, you know, there's not a narrative arc. That's the way I always think of it. Like, I can't think of it any other way. Like if, so we say I'm 18 and then I decide I wanna get better. And then when I'm 23, I reach a stage of better. And then when I'm 28, I'm at a different stage of better. And then, but that's not how my life went. You know, I got a lot better with eating disorders and then I absolutely crashed face first into alcoholism. Like, boom, there I was going, wait, haven't I been here before? Like, didn't we just do this? Wasn't I a mess like 10 years ago and now I'm doing it again? I think that's what I mean by spirals is it's not a trajectory where you're like, I was a mess and then I got it together and now I'm fine forever. Because just, you know, we do live in a world with other people. And stuff happens, you know, and like we're not running it is the fundamental piece of this. Is it like we aren't running this show at all? And that's like when, you know, when you get to 12 step stuff, the idea of surrender there is like um, really important. Recognizing that I can only get it together as much as I can get it together on any given day. You know, I mean, like I don't wake up every day and feel great about my body and my makeup's perfect and my hair isn't 700 different cowlicks and work goes great and my relationships are all flawless. My parents love me. I love my parents. The dog doesn't pee on the sidewalk. Like none of that happens. 
there are days like that that just that just aren't that's the fact of it it's like i think had i expected or known to expect going into recovery that recovery was just messy i would have been a lot less hard on myself for the messy days at first because at first i was like I forgot to take the chicken out. I'm going to hell. You know, I mean, what does that even mean? Like I forgot to unfreeze the chicken. Well, who cares? You know, whatever. Big deal. Like in the scale of things, doesn't matter. But for sure in the scale of things, neither does that pat of butter. This is what I, when, how I can't remember how long ago it was. Eight years ago, you were giving a talk at Harvard and I brought the clients that were at my facility. And I was blown out of the water because this is the way you were speaking. Like, welcome to life. Life is not perfect. But I also want to say I could hear your passion, your passion as a human being without an eating disorder, your passion as being somebody in the world who feels and feeling is not always that great, but it's okay. Those feelings are eventually going to pass. A person who has enough brain power to do all the things that you want to do instead of worrying about how many calories are in a pat of butter. That's when I was blown away by you. I had owned an outpatient center. I had just opened it about, I can't remember, maybe like six months before. And I found out you were coming and I was like, come on, everybody. We're doing an outing. And I took them out for dinner first. I said, we're going to go on a dinner outing. I remember. I remember very I remember what you were wearing for that matter. You had a great pendant necklace. You did. You had a beautiful abalone pendant necklace. This is eight, nine years ago. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? I do have a crazy memory. I I have a pretty good memory too, but I was a little shocked when you and I spoke the first time a few weeks ago and you said you remembered. But I this is being recovered. I say to my clients all the time, I don't have songbirds that wake me. Are you kidding me? I have breakups. I, I pay taxes. <laughs> I, you know, I get a flat tire. Just like you, all these things happen. It is not an excuse though to say, oh, because I had a bad day. That's why I use the eating disorder. No. I mean, for me, it would be a lot more efficient if I had just been an alcoholic first and foremost. Like, I mean, a drink is a lot more accessible than a full-blown eating disorder. It's just like, you really have to work your way into like, I'm super bananas with my eating disorder. If I want to relapse with alcohol, I just go buy a bottle. I mean, it's efficient. I'm a mess within moments, like moments. And so like, if I really want to be like that guy banging his fist on the bar, how did it happen again? How did it happen again? I can do that much more efficiently. But the fact is like, like my expectation of all the recovery processes was that I'd get the things that were wrong with me fixed probably by someone else or by some pill or by some therapeutic modality, <clears throat> somebody was going to show me how to do this. And then there would be maybe a handbook on being a grown-up, and I'd know how to do that. And then there would be a marriage and a baby and a white baby. I mean, like whose narrative is this anyway? You know, I mean, like the fact is, it's not just that I get a flat tire and have to pay taxes. I screw shit up on the daily. I really do. I mean, like really actively I shoot myself in the foot. I shoot other people in the foot. I mean, like I'm superhuman. And so when you talk about that passion that you probably heard me talking with, the thing is that like eating disorders, <clears throat> for me, maybe they functioned as a gigantic funnel for all that passion. They like, they funneled all that passion into this one extremely distilled, high density obsession. Once I removed that obsession and like no longer allowed myself to indulge it, and that really what is what it was for me. Once that was out and everything didn't get routed back to, well, I would have a relationship, but right now I have to, you know, try on my underwear. I'm not doing that full time. I have to like have a fight with my partner or navigate a painful relationship with a parent or, you know, those things are really ambiguous. And so I think what, what I loved about the eating disorder and about substance abuse was that it was simple. It was like straightforward. There was a really cut and dried, all problems routed back to like that Venn diagram, all problems went back to the behavior. Like everything could be solved and made worse by using the behavior again. And you just go around in that little loop. Out in the world, there is no really easy little train track that you get to go around and around and around. And it's just super ambiguous and messy and amorphous. And I don't like that any better than the next guy. I really don't. 
I I want to switch gears a little bit because we were talking about you you did bring up alcoholism, you did bring up AA. I want to know how AA helped you with the recovery process for your eating disorder if it did. Also, little conflicting messages here, which is you and I both believe in full recovery. I am always blown out of the water when a client walks in and says like, I just want to be recovered enough. I thought that's, isn't that what happens? I'm like, what? But AA has a different philosophy. So how do you, how do you integrate the two? I think, first of all, I want to just step back from the idea of AA as a, as an organization. And, uh, you know, it's not AA in particular, it's always the 12 step you know, model that, that I think, you know, the 12 steps are the same regardless of what community you identify with or, or spend time in. And so regardless of what community I spend time in, those 12 steps do hold as a premise that recovery is an ongoing uh, process. It's not a destination that is reached. You're right. I agree with you that eating disorders allow for full recovery. Um, and not everyone agrees with you and I on that, but we also would know better than, wouldn't they, you know, wouldn't we know, right, since we're sitting here in it, Um, and so, like, that fact has always been a little bit hard for me to deal with in terms of um, 12-step recovery, because with with 12 steps, the idea that I will be recovering for the rest of my life, to me, that's really a metaphor more than anything. I mean, some people are very literal, you know, you know, I'll tell you right now, Am I going to ever be a good drinker or a good user of pills? Probably not. I'm never going to get like the hang of that. It's not going to be my style, right? Nor am I ever going to diet well. You know, the fact is, perhaps you call this person an addict. Perhaps you call it a person who goes too far with everything that I do, uh, good or bad. I'm not going to diet well. I'm not going to drink one glass of wine and I'm not going to take one opioid. That's not going to happen. So does that make me an addict, capital A, forever and ever recovers not possible? No, it does make me a person, though, who's somewhat aware of my predilection for doing too much. So that's just like knowing oneself, isn't it? You know, like I don't find myself consumed with obsessions about alcohol any more than I find myself consumed about obsessions with calories. You know, that's just not my brain right now. That's not where it is. And to me, that becomes like, I think in any philosophy, whether it's existentialist therapeutic models or uh, AA and 12-step models, it doesn't matter. If you're, tr- if you're gonna try and use it as an absolute, you know this as a practitioner, nothing works as an absolute. Nothing works in all instances. And so for me, the idea of I am an addict now and forever, amen, that isn't that useful. However, self-knowledge is real useful for me. And knowing the fact that probably I'm not, I'm lying to myself if I say to myself, I'm just going to have a little bit of plastic surgery. No, you know, no, come on, you know, grow up and know yourself, right? No, I'm also, that's the thing. It's like, it's more about self-knowledge for me than it is about any other aspect. It's really like, be honest with yourself. Like, lie to everyone else if you want, but don't lie to yourself. Yeah. I also think all of this comes with age. I, I don't think I realized how I, when I, I, when I thought that I was recovered and I'm putting that in air quotes because I really wasn't was when my behavior stopped. It took years of me understanding myself. It took years of the messiness of, of, of not navigating through life very well to actually be fully recovered. And that comes with time. That comes with wisdom. That comes with experience. That comes with falling and getting yourself back up. And learning that you're pretty good at getting yourself back up. And that's a better skill than never falling. Yeah. You know, I mean, you're going to fall. If my expectation and demand of myself is don't fall, don't fall, don't fall, I will be gravely disappointed all the time. You know, but if I go, you know, like in yoga, right? So, and the yoga, I have this amazing yoga instructor who's always pushing me, pushing me. I'm like, I can't do that. And he like pulls my leg around the back of my head and is like, but you just did it. And I'm like, (laughs) right. So like, I'm like, shut up. I don't know how to do this. And then he shows me and I do it, but he's always telling me that I'm not falling out of my pose periodically. I'm not trying hard enough. Like, I'm like, what do you mean falling? He's like, you fall great. You always do a somersault right across. I'm like, yeah, in the middle of class, I go somersaulting across the floor in front of all the real yoga ladies. Right. And so like, but that's the reality of it is that's how I learn. That's actually how human beings 
You know, we don't learn it by doing it right from go. We learn it by doing it wrong a couple of times and then mastering the way we do it. Like how my recovery happens isn't the way your recovery happens. There is no step-by-step, step. you know, if you do steps one through five of recovery, well, I mean, you know, the 12-step model may hold to that. I don't know that I think that's true. And so again, to the spiral image of like deepening recovery, deepening wisdom, deepening a sense of peace and deepening a sense of really ultimately self-acceptance. Because like, if I'm waiting for social media to approve of me and my family to approve of me and all of my friends to approve of me and the media to approve of me and critics to approve of me, I will be sorely sad a lot of the time. But at the end of the day, I really do need to get up and uh, or I need to be able to go to bed and say, I, I'm all right with myself. I did okay today. You know, did the best I could. Well, I'll do a little better or not. I also know, and forgive me, I feel like I just interrupted you. I also know that as a recovered person, I can totally take accountability for where I fucked up. That's the difference. When I was in my eating disorder, if I did something, I did everything in my power to cover my tracks, cover it up, make everything look perfect. It, it didn't happen. Now I dive into it. And by the way, that dive is really, really uncomfortable. I hate it, but I do it. I dive right into it. I, I own my parts. I look where other people, I also don't blame myself for everything anymore. It is, it is like the full picture. I couldn't do that in my eating disorder. I had to blame somebody. It was typically myself or somebody. There had to be all these things similar to what you're talking about with the way people have been with your book. It's not just one thing, but I got to tell you something. I have, I have dove, I dove into some crap in my life. We all have. But thank God, as a recovered person, I now reach out to people so my friends and family help me. As a recovered person, I'm a little more humble and I understand I'm not going to do everything perfectly. As a recovered person, I think it is human, as you said, to like fall out of a pose or make a mistake as long as I own it and try to do something with it. If I just try to cover it up, forget about it. I've made a lot of mistakes in life and I really feel like I learned from all of them. Oh yeah. Yeah. I don't, I mean, you know, when people are like, would you go back and change your life? I'm like, that might be the silliest question I've ever heard because like, would I, yeah, for my ego, sure. I'd go back and clean up all the messes I made and never have made them in the first place. And now I'd be spotless, right? That's not how it is, but I also wouldn't be who I am at all. And I'm actually okay with who I am. And so that the thing that when we talk about like how everything had to be perfect, there's such fragility, there's such fragility and brittleness in the need to do everything right. You won't like blow up the figurine now, man, because it won't stay together. Just smash it and be like, okay, I've got all these pieces. What am I going to make? You know? And so like, that's the thing about, um, the idea of humility also, like when I, I have it recently in a dating profile, swear to God, I wrote, I apologize when I fuck it up. If you don't know how to do it, kindly learn on someone else's time. Cause I'm like so tired of listening to like individuals with whom I may or may not be involved telling me why everything is my fault. And I'm like, no, not this time. I told you what part was mine. I know what part is mine. I said, I was sorry. Now it's your turn, right? Now pick it up. That aspect of like, it doesn't break me now to be wrong because I'm not that fragile. And so that's important. I also want to point out what you said when you were like, yeah, if I could go back and clean everything up and make my whole everything spotless and blah, blah, blah. No offense. I don't want to be friends with that person. I don't, I am, I am messy. I'm funny. I'm serious. I laugh. I cry. I've made mistakes. I've done stupid things. That's who I am. I I don't want, and, but by the way, when, and this was just my experience, when I was in my eating disorder, I desperately wanted to portray that person with no spots on my quote unquote record. Everything was perfect. Everything. I, I didn't learn until I became fully recovered, how beautiful vulnerability is, how beautiful mistakes can be, how, you know, nobody really does wake up in the morning with their makeup already on and all that good stuff, right? That's not life. And I don't want to be friends with the person that, that I was trying to be. I'll be honest. Right, right. I don't trust that person. I think that's the thing for me is that people I'm willing to trust have 
experience. You know, and in the same way, like I think there's this wonderful body metaphor that I can actually use here is that as I've gotten older, my acceptance of my body has very much paralleled my acceptance of who I am. Like I so am amazed at my strength that I don't need to worry about whether the skin's attached the way I would prefer it to be. Like if it's sagging, it's sagging. There you have it. So what? It's amazingly strong. Like, you know, take it with what you got, you know, the kind of the ability to recognize that we are not going to be mannequins ever allows for a real freedom and a real actual appreciation for all that beauty and difference, that beauty in like things that are flawed, the kintsugi, like you think about the Japanese art of kintsugi, that's the art of broken things being put back together and right with gold, like that's the art of kintsugi. The broken thing gets put back together with gold and becomes a new artistic object that is more beautiful. And that's like, there's a whole philosophy behind it. And that to me is really important to know that like the body that I thought I wanted when I was young, you couldn't pay me enough to walk around in that body right now. It doesn't move. Like I can climb anything in this body. Is it perfect? Like visually? Well, what, the, what does that even mean? I think it's fab, you know? And so like, if I'm in it and I like it, what's the question? You know, I mean, like, and if I'm myself and I'm okay with me, again, I don't answer to anybody else. I don't need to be constantly like, and that's what I worry about with people growing up in this, in this virtual world is the idea that they do not exist if they do not have that constant, like how many people clicked, I love you today? Like, what does that even mean for like who they are as core humans? And like, like I wake up in the morning and I know my friends love me, whether I check within, in with them on social media or not, I know for sure they do. Cause like I checked the last time I saw them. It was real. And we've been through some stuff together. That's how I feel about my body at this point. Like it's a body. We've been through some stuff and we're pretty tight. You know what else I want to go back to? I, I say this all the time. Like I've said this a thousand times in all the podcasts, but one of the millions of things that went into my eating disorder is I didn't feel like I fit in. I didn't feel like I was good enough. I didn't, you know, I thought, you know, in my mind's eye, everybody was tall, thin, blonde, straight hair. I've got this big curly, you know, whatever. And part of my eating disorder was trying to fit into all the things that didn't fit me. Like, the wardrobes. I used to straighten my hair. I used to do all these things, right? Because that's what I thought beauty was. So I was willing to starve myself to manipulate, to overexercise, to use laxatives, to oh, la, 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 to fit into stuff that, by the way, I wasn't even comfortable in. What I am comfortable in is really artsy, flowy clothes with big jewelry and my hair tied up and blah, blah, blah. What did you say earlier in this podcast? Oh, I remembered you. You had that big pendant. By the way, my jewelry speaks to who I am. So you were actually speaking about a part of me, but you didn't say, oh, I remember you. You look like you were about a size six back then. Or you look like you were about, you had your pant size was about a 12. I remember that. Like people don't, people remember energy. People remember beauty that is not a pant size. I am often flattered when people, again, the jewelry I wear says something about me because I pick it out very carefully because I love big things and what. So when somebody says that, I feel like they're saying, oh yeah, I remember your soul. You had that soul walking. You didn't remember what size my shirt was. Right? No, you're wearing a dress for one thing. And I thought your elegant flowiness was just like, you swept in with this force of self. That's what I remember about people. Like little girls hiding in the corner, little boys hiding in the corner, like up in their little praying mantis routine. It's not for me. You know, I can't, I just want to go over there and be like, unfold, grow, and talk to me after that. Like, tell me who you are when you found yourself and your feet in this world. The interesting thing is, is that that was all of that that you saw walk into the room that day. I was terrified of me. Not, not that day, that day, that day I was fucking full of myself. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I was terrified of all of that energy. I remember it's so funny when I was little. 
And by the way, I love my mother more than anything in the world, but my mother used to yell at me because I was little and I would wake up super early and we had hardwood floors and I walk really loud. She'd be like, and she'd open her bedroom door and be like, stop walking so loud. So it was again, one of the millions of things. So I was like, Ooh, I'm, I'm too much. I'm too loud. I'm too big. I'm too this. Now I'm in my office and I go out to get a client. And before I even come around the corner, they're like, oh, I know it's you, Karen. I can tell by your walk. And they say it in a beautiful way. And I'm thinking, oh my God, has life come full circle, right? Sometimes we're so afraid of everything that we are. Am I too big? Am I too this? Am I too loud? Am I, you know what? I don't know, but I am. I am a loud person. I do walk heavy. I, it's, it's who I am. It's my energy. And I just have to learn to be with it. And I could do two things. I could either shrivel up in the corner like those other people, or I could own it and rock it. Right. And that's the thing is that like, I mean, that's so much what beauty is, is people knowing whether it's a, a word knowing like this is who I am, or just like a possess, a self-possession, you know, that walk through the world and be like, this is the space I take, man, move over. I need all the space. It means I need my space though. And it means I get it. I get that space. I don't have to earn it. It is my birthright. I am here in this world. And so I just, you know, and I do want to acknowledge the fact that this, this idea of what's beauty is so profoundly misogynistic, racist, screwed up, homophobic. I mean, it is bigoted. This idea of like, what's beauty enough? Like when you are a person of color, what do you do with this idea that beauty is tall and blonde? When you are a small woman, what do you do with the idea that when you are a small round woman, which is what I am, you know, what do you do with the idea that beauty is tall and willowy? When you are a boy who identifies as gender neutral later on in his life and then becomes a they, what do you do with the idea that men are six feet tall and have a chiseled chin? I mean, screw all of that. Like beauty is absolutely that young person walking out into the world and being like, this is it, dudes. This is me. That's the gorgeous that I see in people these days. I do not want to end this podcast, but I have to. And I want to end it on that. Like that is where I'm saying, you know what? Normally I tie it up really eloquently, but that's the message that I want to end on because that is really the truth of it. I have to ask you a totally unrelated question. And I, I didn't even I didn't even send you these questions and I apologize. We're doing this live right now. I usually send them to, to the guests before they come on. I asked them one to pick one of three questions, um, but I'm gonna pick the question for you and I'm gonna see if you can answer it. If someone were to write about you on a bathroom stall, what would it say? Oh, great question. Oh, I love that so much. Um, I'm just trying to think like, uh, you know, something really simple, I'd write it and it would say, I was here. I love it. Maria, thank you so, so much for being on the show. Is there anything you'd want to say before we end? No, just thank you. And thank you to all the people who tune into this and really are willing and open to like thinking about how to do how to do recovery and to get to recovery in different ways and to like really open up that idea outward, like open up the idea of where we can take this from here. Yeah. Thank you again. It has been a pleasure. Thank you so much. All right, everyone, as much as I hate to say it, this episode is coming to a close. So thank you for listening to another episode of Everybody Bites. Everybody Bites. <laughs> Take 20. Welcome to, <laughs> thank you for listening to another episode. <laughs> I know where this is coming from. Uh, wh what's the name of my podcast? <laughs> All right. We're just going to end right now. Uh, thank you for listening to another episode of Recovery Bites. And I will look forward to speaking with all of you again next week. Okay, thanks everyone. Take care and stay safe. Bye-bye. It's a wrap for this week's episode of Recovery Bites. And I thank each and every one of you for tuning in with me. You can view more from today's episode, including guest information and excerpts by visiting www 
www.karenlewisedc.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to future shows by searching Recovery Bites on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast. All right, everybody, be well, and thanks for listening to my Bite for the Week. <laughs>